Thank you. Psalm 87 is an interesting psalm, and one maybe that we wouldn't pick up on when we read through it uh, just rapidly, catching on to what it is saying. But it's so appropriate for the passage we're going to be studying this morning. Um, this one was born there. And it's talking about Zion, the city of our God. Zion, another name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not just the capital city of Israel, or the capital of the Jewish people. It's God's capital. And it's God's capital for the entire world. There's this sense that it's presented in that way spiritually. And as you look through this psalm, it says, glorious things are spoken of the city of God. And in verse 4, it says, it talks about Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre and Cush. And it says, this one was born there. And it's talking about people from those, not just foreign nations, but enemy nations. And they're going to be people from those Gentile nations that were an enemy to Israel who are saying, who God says, not them, this one was born there. See, it's not just claiming of citizenship. It's not just a person saying, oh yeah, I've got my citizenship. But it's going to be God saying, no, this is one of mine. And they'll come from all of the earth. And you notice in the last verse, it talks about even God uh, recording and registers among the people of Zion themselves. And we understand that what's being talked about here is more than simply a physical or political citizenship. What we're talking about here is a spiritual citizenship that God says, no, this one is mine. He talks about Israel as Jacob in this, and so it's appropriate as we turn to uh, Genesis chapter 29 that we think of Israel in terms of Jacob because we have been following Jacob's story. Uh, started back up again, the blessing has been passed along, uh, although it was uh, a real mishmash, deceitful, and, and that sort of thing. In the end, Isaac gives his blessing the blessing that God would have him give to Jacob. And his journey has begun. And not simply a journey to Haran, his mother's uh, home area, but also his spiritual journey has begun. You probably remember, uh, you know, that he, he didn't seem like he was, he was there. He was on track. He was talking about, um, you know, to his father and going, your God. But now he's, he started this spiritual journey and it's kind of like a train coming out of the station. You've seen it on the movies, those steam engines, they're trying to build up and they go pretty slow at the beginning and this is where he's at. He's going slow. Even after God shows up in a vision, he's still got a long way to go in terms of understanding what this relationship is all about. We need to remember, too, I heard this said over this past week, what a vision is. You know, a lot of times, and I thought when the person said this, yeah, that's exactly what I think. A lot of times we think of a vision being some kind of like dreamy, like uh, seeing something that's not really there. But when we talk about a vision biblically, 
It's usually about somebody seeing what is actually there. Somebody being transported out of this reality to see what's going on in a greater reality. And that's what it was. When he saw the Lord above and angels descending and ascending on that staircase or ladder or whatever it was, he was understanding, he was seeing, he was getting a full-in-the-face vision of what really is taking place. God is over this earth, and he is involved in what's going on, sending his messengers. He is there, and that's what Jacob came out of this vision with. God is here. But it was still only a partial, and he keeps saying, God's here. This is the gate of God. He wasn't understanding, no, God is here, and God is saying I am here. I am with you, Jacob. In fact, God said that in the vision, didn't he? That, that covenant relationship, that commitment that I had to Abraham and to Isaac, I now have with you. I've chosen you. You're in my hands. You're one of mine. He was born in Zion before there was a Zion even. <laughs> He was in the citizenship of the family of God. And so we see his response and we go, well, it wasn't really on track. Remember, it was mildly inappropriate or more than mildly inappropriate. He says, God is here. And then he goes, well, if, if you give me food and clothes, you can be my God. If you give me food and clothes, the very thing that the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount said, listen, if you're in my family, don't worry about food and clothes. <laughs> and he's going, you know, just give me food and clothes, and then I'll let you be my God. And you think, well, did he really say it that crassly? And that's, I went back to it. I thought, you know, he didn't really say it in those words, but you go back to verse 21, and it's like, yeah, it's basically what he's saying. Then you'll be my God. Forgetting the fact that God has said, no, you are mine. And so we, we get this idea of what God's grace means. His lavish grace. He is willing to love people who do not deserve his love. And even after he starts that relationship with them, and they continue to disrespect the relationship. He says, no, I'm going to continue to love them until they understand. Until they know who I really am. How great my love is. Think of it. The creature and the covenant-making creator. I don't want you to think of it from the perspective of being the creature. I want you to think if you were the one in God's shoes making the relationship with Jacob and he turned around and he says, well, if you do all those things for me, then I'll let you be my God. Then I'll follow you. If you were God for a day, how would you respond to him? We talk about God being harsh. How would you have responded if, if Jacob had turned and said that to you? Would it have been like 
James and John, the town that rejected Jesus, and they said, Jesus, give us the word. We'll take care of it. We'll call down fire on them. That's more likely our response, wouldn't it be? We would at least go, oh, you're going to be like that? Well, you can go it on your own then for a while. I'm going to step away, and you're going to see how you self-destruct. And yet God does not do that. This is where we, we bring in that verse from Isaiah 55, where God says, my ways, I'm not going to say it right, am I? Help me. My ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts. My ways are not, that's it, thank you. My, your way, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's what that's talking about. It's not just talking about, you know, God's way beyond us. He thinks, outthinks us. In that passage, he's saying, you know, you guys are into revenge, are into making people pay. No. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I am beyond you in terms of my love and my graciousness. And we need to be reminded of that because we don't think like God on our own. We don't think like God naturally. We don't think like God when we hang around with everybody we hang around with in this world who goes, they did that to you? Well, then you do it to them. And maybe just a little bit more. Just so they know. And God's going, no, I'm not a vengeful God. I'm not a God, if he was a vengeful God, this world would not be here now. He's a God who's way above us in terms of his thoughts, his actions, his reactions, his patience, his steadfast love. His steadfast love. And so we see that even at the end of that story last week, Jacob was already losing ground. He's talking about God as though God wasn't there. In verse 21 of 28, he says, yeah, at the end of that, um, then the Lord shall be my God. He's talking with God as though he's in the third person. When he just said, God is right here. What about you and I? Where are we at? Do we go, God is here? You know, we, we come together and we worship. We go, God is here with us. Is that the way you and I are thinking right now? Or we've, have we slipped into talking about or thinking about God as though he's somewhere else? And not that he is with us. We are in his presence right now. And then when we leave this place, we're still in his presence. He's with us. We're talking with him. This conversation that's going on in our mind, it's not a private conversation, right? And that's the praying without ceasing, that ongoing conversation with the Lord about, yes, Lord, you being here in the midst of what we're doing right now, but also in our minds. And let's be honest with ourselves. If we're not, 
there, if we're not keeping that up, if we're distancing ourselves from God, let's be honest with him as we talk to him about that. Because that is a wonderful thing. Because that's something that God uses to work with us and bring us close and and we come into communion with him when we're talking with him about the problems that are obvious in our way of thinking, in in our life. Even this idea of us not thinking that he is here with us. And so when you think about your faith, when I think about my faith and how it falls short, Let's do it understanding we're doing it with God as my witness. Do you remember that? With God as my witness. Well, let's remember God is always our witness. God is always there. God, and so let's talk about, you know, God, I'm having a struggle with my faith. Maybe I don't believe you for this or that. Or maybe it's just living life in relationship with you. Talk to him about that. Directly. Because he wants to be in communion with us. And he's there. And so we come to the message today in Genesis 29. The title is, Can We Trust This God of Ours? And probably you're thinking a little bit differently about that than when you first read it. Can we trust this God of ours? When we say that, can we trust this God of ours? We normally say it in that way. Is he trustworthy? But think of it the other way. Can we trust this God of ours? Not thinking about his abilities, about his faithfulness, but thinking about ours. Is it capable as a a fragile, frail human being who struggles to live beyond this very small encapsulated reality that we're in right now? Can I? Can I trust in him? Do I have the ability to trust in him? Well, hopefully these questions will be answered as we read through this story. We see a man who has a lack of credentials as far as faith. He's the least willing man of faith, it seems, among the patriarchs. And yet God guides his feet to the right place. He meets the right person. And despite an adversary, he completes the right purpose that God has for him. There's an alternative title that could be Water Wells, Wedding Bells, and Wicked Scoundrels. But I'm not that creative, so I won't give you that title. Anyways, let's pray as we go into this story and, and ask God to, to meet us and speak with us through, through his word. Father, thank you. Thank you for your, your presence with us right here and right now. And I pray that you would help us to have that sense that you are here. I say that sense, but Lord, the fact is you are here. Help us to be aware. Speak to us as we look into this story, this history of another man's life, another man who reflects us in many ways. And help us to understand your truth 
understand you. And help us to understand your character as you show it in grace to this world and to us in particular. So teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read, then, then Jacob, verse 1, 29, chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey. It's a journey of faith too, right? And came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where did you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Naor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go to past- and pasture them. And they said, we cannot until the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. So what we see is, as Jacob begins this journey, as he, as he leaves this Bethel, this house of God, this place where he had a vision of God, he gets exactly to the right place that he's going to without GPS he ends up in the right spot. How many times have we seen this in our own lives where God has worked through a situation and we've ended up being in the right place and even here in, at the right time? How many times do we step over God's graciousness in providence, in the normal everyday like this? We step over it. We forget to recognize that it was God who was at work, the God who is there. And we go, what a coincidence. This is exactly where I was trying to come. This is exactly where I hoped to be. And it all worked out. Maybe because we think it was a coincidence or we believe that we deserve the grace that God shows and we don't recognize him. We think he's, he's a contractual God. We think, well, I was being put pretty obedient anyways. So I deserved to get what I got. I deserved for things to work out. Well, when we look at the story of Jacob, when we think of his life, we know, well, he didn't deserve it. We're able to identify that in the life of another person. We could even do that right here, right now. Let's do a little exercise where you look around you and, no, we won't do that. (laughs) It's too easy, isn't it? It's too easy. It's too natural, isn't it? We think, man, God's good to them. (laughs) He blessed them. They don't deserve it. But what about me? What about you? 
if we're honest with ourselves, we know more about our unworthiness than we know about anyone else's unworthiness. Isn't that true? We need to keep that at the forefront. We'll be a lot happier about our life. And so God isn't a, a God who is a deal maker. He says, I am going to love you. I'm going to show you grace. And we need to be people who understand that. Who go, man, beyond what I deserve. Yeah, beyond what I deserve. I deserve judgment. He is willing to pour out his grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. And here we have Jacob arriving at Haran, exactly where he wanted to go. And Laban's daughter, the man who he's looking for, his daughter's walking down the path right then. Now, when we talk about Jacob and his unworthiness, we're not saying that he wasn't a bright guy, that he didn't have God-given gifts and abilities naturally. We say they're natural gifts, but and he was using them. But up to this point in his life, Jacob was a better example of somebody who was using their abilities in an incorrect way. He was a smart guy, right? But what was he doing with his smarts? He wasn't serving God. He was scheming, incessantly scheming. And so he comes into this situation, and he's smart. And he starts looking around him and, and he starts analyzing the situation. He goes, well, why do you guys do what you do? doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, you shouldn't all be together right now. You're, you're missing daylight here. You should be out pasturing your sheep. And so we see that's a strength that he has. He's, he's able to come into the situation once again and analyze another person's weaknesses faults, their error. Something we should also touch on right now. Have you ever heard that your greatest strengths can be your greatest weaknesses? You've heard that before? Why? Well, the worst thing about them is they can cause us to be self-dependent. We think, I figured that out. These are, this is my ability but when we think about the creature-creator relationship, we think nothing that we have is our own. Even those things we call natural abilities are things, gifts that God has given to us. And so we need to be careful to use them in a way that honors God. And like I said, instead of serving God incredibly, Jacob was scheming incessantly. But as he analyzes this situation, he goes, hey, these guys are doing things wrong. Why aren't they, you know, just getting the water of the sheep and getting out to pasture? But they explained to him, oh, we can't move the stone and uh, blah, 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 blah. And the question is, he might have missed the fact that God brought him to the right place. He might have thought, oh, that's just a coincidence. But has he caught on that God has brought him to this place at the exact right time? Rachel Anders, 
even as he's analyzing this other guys and their situation and their problems, is he catching on that it's God's grace that has led him here to this, to this place? Let's carry on reading. Verses 9 to 12. And while he's still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. It seems that Jacob didn't miss the wonder from the way it's written in the story. The wonder of the chance meeting. That it was, wow, this is Laban's daughter. This is Laban's flock. It's three times Laban, his mother's brother. Laban, his mother's brother. And he's overwhelmed with emotion. He kisses, he weeps. Don't make too much of the kiss. It was probably more a cultural thing. It wasn't as romantic as you're all hoping it was, as some of you are hoping it was. But why shouldn't he be thinking something, right? Because he was going to find a wife. That was the purpose. His mom said to him, go somewhere far away. We don't want you to have a Canaanite wife. And this was a practice. Go look for a reputable family, our family. The genetic pool was still wide enough that it was okay to marry into your own family. It didn't cause the problems that it causes today. And so he, he meets this Rachel. And we know the rest of the story, so we know who she is to become. But you know, you think about it. He could be thinking something about this too, because where did his father find his wife or where did Abraham's servant find his father a wife was it not at a well was it not possibly this very well so this has been a good well for them but you think of it this is like what they call and I only learned about this term when I came back from Peru somebody was explaining it to me a meta-narrative a meta-narrative, which is a story that a culture embraces. And they go, this is our story. This is a pattern that we've seen throughout our history. And this helps tell our story. This helps us understand. And so what we have is Abraham's servant goes to a well, finds a bride for Isaac. Jacob goes to a well, finds a bride Later on, Moses, remember, when he runs from Egypt, goes to a well. Now, he used to beat up the other shepherds and finds a wife. And so this is something that's a part of the psyche of the Jewish people, the, their culture. It's their meta-narrative. And it should be something that's part of our way of thinking as Christians, as people who know the word of God. And so when we get to John chapter 4, and Jesus arrives at a well, what should we be thinking? 
He's about to meet his bride. He's about to meet and present himself to his bride. And that's exactly what's going on in that story, isn't it? I mean, in this case, we have this, uh, what will we call him? An imperfect man meeting a perfect bride. Think of it. Jacob was an imperfect man, but Rachel fit the specs that his mother gave him. You don't want to marry a Canaanite woman. You want to go over here and look for a wife. And here she is, part of his mother's family. What could be better? But in John chapter 4, what do we have? We have the perfect man meeting the imperfect bride. I mean, she's a Gentile woman. A loose living, it seems. We don't know all the story, but five different husbands. And now living with a man who's not her husband, the imperfect bride. And that is a picture of what? Christ and the church. That woman who Jesus reveals himself to. This is the first open, hey, he says to her, I am the Messiah. And even in that whole story, she tips us off, right? She unwittingly tells us what's going on here because she goes, this is whose well? She says, this is Jacob's well. And then she says to Jesus, she says, are you better than our father Jacob? You bet he is. He's the perfect man for an imperfect bride. And yet he's saying, I am here. I am the one. I am your Messiah. It's a fascinating, fascinating way that God has written his story. So that little by little we, we discover it and our mind is blown. Like, wow. God is subtly making things very clear to us who he is, what he's doing, how great his love is for us and his grace. His grace. And so here Jacob is declaring himself to Rachel. Were his motives pure as he, he came before her? And uh, We don't know. I would say knowing Jacob, probably not. I mean, I go, as I read through that, it says, ooh, here is Rachel, his mother, mother's brother's daughter. But it also says, ooh, here are her sheep. Was it she or the sheep that he was thinking, ooh, was it hearts in his pupils or was it dollar signs? Man, this guy's wealthy. He's got a good, great flock. You wonder. You wonder when it comes to Jacob. Who knows? But there was one thing that was going on. He was impressed and he says, I want to get me a piece of this action. He turns into Popeye, we could think, 
and moves the stone all by himself. You know, I, I read that, and that's the idea. I think that's what was always presented. I mean, this guy moves the stone. Think of who Jacob is. The schemer, the smart guy. I think it was round stones and stick levers. I think he figured out a way to move this stone. I mean, this was a stone that several of these other guys had to move together. How can he lift it on his, uh, unless he gave, God gave him Samson-like strength? But I think using his ability, probably he figured out a way to move the stone by himself. And so he uncaps the well. Rachel's able to water her sheep, but of course, she's gone. We don't know exactly how he uncaps the well. Obviously, this is not important to the story. Otherwise, it would have been included. The important point is, Jacob located his bride. And he was willing to do whatever he could for her. So he moved this immovable stone. The picture we have here is even more so of the Christ who will do whatever he can for his bride. He'll give his very life for his beloved. That's the picture of grace that we have here. He'll do whatever he can, yes, even give his own life so that his bride might obtain living water. Back to John chapter 4, salvation. Later in that gospel, in John 15, 13, it says, greater love has no man than this. Jesus says it, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And after all, in this story, Rachel was family. In our story, God has claimed us as family. This one was born here. We didn't know it. But he said, no, this one is part of my family. And so I will do whatever I can, whatever I have to, to claim them as my own. And we know Jesus laid down his life. He paid the price for his kin. We carry on reading in this story. Rebecca ran off, told her father in verse 13, it says, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. That gave me pause. I don't know if Jacob told him all the story. <laughs> If he told him all about how he deceived his father and all that sort of thing and he was on the run, but he told him, told him something anyways. 
Where am I at? Did somebody have their finger there? 14, thank you. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he said with him, he st- said with him, stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one, Leah. The name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Then it seemed to him, they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Now we don't know if this was part of the human purposes as as Rebecca sent Jacob to Haran that she was thinking, okay, he's going to obtain an inheritance among Laban. We don't even know if this was part of Jacob's idea but here we get an introduction to a plan that was God's obviously because it happened God worked this out a way to bless Jacob materially apart from or over and above the blessing and the birthright that he was going to get from his own father God can make something out of nothing. It's interesting. I mean, he didn't take his birthright with him when he left. He didn't, I mean, it's the land was included. His father's possessions. But here, he is out there. He's run through the desert. He has very little with him. And God's saying, I'm going to make something out of you. Even though you have nothing. I mean, he had his ingenuity, he had his smarts, but God even gave that to him. And so God can make something out of nothing even when there's an adversary working against his children. Because we know who Laban is. (laughs) We'll see that in the story. We can't miss the fact that Laban was a mirror being placed in front of Jacob to show him the sort of guy he was. Jacob was a schemer. He was going to meet a guy who was a schemer with experience. Laban had been schemer. I mean, we can go back to read when Abraham's uh, servant showed up at the well looking for a bride. Do you remember how Laban was involved? He was the brother who noticed, it says he noticed the bracelets, the jewelry that the the servant of Abraham gave to his sister, Rebecca. And then when the servant was making the proposal to his father, Laban's there going, this is a good deal. He's ready to sell his sister off to the highest bidder. So this is the sort of thinking that this guy has, and he's, he's looking at, and I mean, what kind of a thing is this to your son-in-law, saying, well, it'd be better for me to marry her off to you than someone else. 
That's a high acclaim. Thanks a lot. But he's going, this is a good deal. Here's a way that I can keep my wealth and my daughters cared for. What was in the higher plane? We're not sure. Was it his daughters he was concerned about or his wealth? You know, if we did it this way, we could keep it all in the family. What a guy. So Laban enters into this process where he starts making deals for his benefit with his sister's son. But God's over this too. We'll see that. He has a kind eye toward his sister's son, but in the end he thinks he's a scam artist, right? takes one to know one but in this story and this is where we end and this is what we're gonna well what we have to end with today so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her We end with the love that Jacob has for Rachel. But we've recognized through this story the love that God has for an unworthy Jacob. It's gracious. It's beyond what he deserves. It's it's way above his pay grade if this was a contract. Way above what he's showing in terms of faith. All he's done is merely recognize, God, you're here. You're a real God. And you could bless me with a lot of good stuff. But God is willing to be gracious because God has chosen him. God said, you're my family. You're my family. And what we see more than anything in this passage those of us who are living in the New Testament, is pictured in this story the love that Christ has for his church. True story, true history that shows God's character in a rough setting back in the Old Testament, but then we see Christ coming for his church and willing to lay down his life to uncap the well of salvation for us. Can we trust this God of ours? For our part in this question, we have to recognize our lives will always look somewhat like Jacob's. There'll always be this this incomplete struggle of faith, but guess what? For his part in this relationship, God's willing to make up the difference. Not in a contractual way, but in a gracious way. He steps beyond anything that we deserve. He ignores what we do deserve. And he says, I love you anyways. Was that kid's story? I'll love you for always. 
you'll always be my child, something, I can't remember it. My mother never read me that book. <laughs> but she loved me. But more than that, God loves us. And all he asks for us is that willingness to love him back. John writes, the apostle of love writes in his first letter, John, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. God was the initiator. God was the one that said, this one was born here. This one is part of the family. And that's why we are able to love in return. So for his part, he can always be trusted completely. Earlier in that chapter in 1 John 4, it says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The man came to find his bride. In this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love. We ought to love him, and it says there, we ought to love one another. Are we as uncertain of God's love as the woman at the well was of Jesus' love? Do you remember her? Do you remember how she responded? What do you want from me? She'd had many men just trying to get what they wanted from her. Look at you asking me for water. Are you as uncertain of God's love as that? Are you thinking contractually? Are you thinking, man, why does God want me to follow him? What abilities of mine and talents is he after, really? Because if this is our mindset, if our mindset is affected by this natural way of thinking, we will never be able to love him properly or others properly. Is that what that verse means? Perfect love casts out fear. Because if we think this is some sort of a contractual arrangement, if we don't understand the grace involved, we'll always be trying to hold back because we don't want to give too much, you know. In a contract, it's 50-50. You only want to give as much as the other person is. There's a line there, right? But when it's grace, what is it? God has given a thousand percent. Oh, I know, a thousand percent's impossible. That's grace. And he's asked us to give all that we have. And that's only just. When we talk about his grace, 
and his love for us. And so we must love him and one another. Father, help us. Help us to comprehend in some small way or in some growing way your grace to us. We sing about it, but sometimes it's, it's an empty word because we haven't thought about it. We haven't met with you on this. We haven't been in communion, communication with you. And you show us these human stories to help us understand how great your love is for us. Thank you for coming to us, for finding us, for calling us your own. Lord, I pray that you would help us to settle into that relationship. Maybe not with the greatest faith, the clearest faith, but a a pure confidence in you, Lord. A growing confidence in you. Help us to trust you with us, with our lives, with everything. And help us to know that we're yours. And then, of course, we will live as though we're yours. We'll live out that love that you've shown to us, that grace that you've shown to us, to others. Help us, Lord. Help us to draw near to you and to find everything that we'd ever hoped for in relationship with you. Amen.